on the St. Alphonse's heaps Missing both the shoes with some broken teeth responses Bloody stained glass like busted in pieces on the ground The arresting officer familiar with the situation picked him It's a beautiful day in paradise, folks. And not too bad here in Des Moines, Iowa, either. Hey, at least we've got the cultural and culinary crossroads of America thing going for us. But, hey, it is a really nice day here in town. All right, so uh, with me in the studio, Adam Mason here. Uh, Before we launch into the conversation we're going to have about Wells Fargo and their little stagecoach being under fire, we're going to just tell you a little bit about what's coming up uh, later in the show. We're going to talk about the uh, effort to create a local power district in uh, Decorah in northeast Iowa. Uh, That's going to be on the ballot really soon. We're going to talk about how uh, Trump's um, appointee to the Supreme Court, uh, Judge Gorsuch, voted against Trump on immigration. Interesting. I wonder what the backstory is there. We'll also talk about uh, the Philadelphia Starbucks incident where two black men were thrown out. Uh, K.O. Abdul-Samad is joining us for that conversation. We'll also talk about how the uh, student walkout over this weekend went and how, the, uh, how that might be affected by the uh, Waffle House um, massacre, let's call it that. Four people killed, eight injured, that's a massacre. We'll also talk about the uh, ranked choice voting issue getting more attention. That's uh, an arcane little issue that could be really, really important. That's uh, ahead on our program. But first, I want to welcome Adam Mason with Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement to the program. Uh, Wells Fargo under fire on so many fronts. Um, I mean, years ago, I, I was, you know, criticizing them heavily, and so was the Republican auditor of the state, David Vaught, for taking a whole bunch of taxpayer money and then actually not delivering on the promise they made regarding job creation. And, yeah, that's just a small thing right now compared to the $1 billion fine they just got last, last week. That's right. Uh, and, um, I mean, not just for something careless, but for, like, huge, negligent, structural, you know, bad behavior. Right. <laughs> you know? You know, and it's it's interesting because it's not so long ago that the big banks, Wells Fargo included, brought our economy to the brink of disaster. Yeah. And now Wells Fargo is just back at it again. Well, and uh, you know, they're they're uh, if I if I can reference the uh, story in the Des Moines Register today, the um, you know their profits are up, but nowhere near as much as say uh, Chase Morgan or Bank of America, and analysts are attributing the in- increase in their profits largely to the fact that they. Um, got this big tax cut from their buddy in the White House. <laughs> so otherwise, you know, the, the corporation is tanking. And now from our point of view in Des Moines, I mean, I'll bet, every, I'll bet everybody in the studio, I'll bet everybody in this building has a friend or a family member or a neighbor working at Wells Fargo. Right. They're a big employer here in town. They are. Yeah, and, and I've got some really good friends who work there. Right. And they're not bad people. None of you. <laughs> Um, no, that's exactly right. You know that that uh, they are there. What we are seeing, though, is that they continue to rely on these predatory practices to to keep themselves afloat, and, and that needs yeah. to change. Yeah. Well, it's not just predatory practices that concern us too. It's who they finance. Right. And they're coming under a lot of uh, a lot of criticism for financing the NRA. Right. Uh, for financing private prisons, which we don't have in Iowa yet, but all over the country, private prisons are proving to be. Um, a horrible alternative to, you know, public prisons, which aren't a great alternative, you know, a great option. Of, but the private stuff is, like, so much worse. Right. And they're financing that, and they're financing pipelines. Right. Uh, no, that trifecta alone, in, yeah. in my book, and I'm sure yours as well, is enough to say no more and, and that we need to address all of these ills. You, know, you raised a good point. Uh, they're, they're financing. They um, have proudly been the bank of the NRA. 
And another development just last week was the American Federation of Teachers, mm. uh, an international teachers union, uh, divested because of that relationship with the NRA, pulled all of their money out because of the, you know, the growing movement that we see teachers taking action, uh, students taking action around, around guns. And I think that is going to escalate. Here come the uh, Sisters of St. Francis of Philadelphia. And uh, they're, um, they're, they're the contact listed in this story. Uh, indicates that they're part of an interfaith investment group with th- with 634 billion in assets, and they want quote a sincere apology to all the people who have been affected by Wells Fargo's behavior. Okay, now I'm hoping that I mean I mean sister, that's very nice of you asked them to say I'm sorry, but you can do better than that. I know because I, I was in, I was I was in your classes for for, <laughs> for eight years. I know you can do better than that. You can be much more disciplined, much more strict. I'm not recommending you get the ruler out like you did in my case. Uh, (laughs) But um, come on. We can do more than just like ask for an apology. And maybe with enough pressure from inside and outside, the uh, the sisters in Philadelphia and a lot of other entities that probably have huge assets tied up with Wells Fargo – We'll begin to say, look, you got to change or we're backing out. Right. And we've actually heard that some of these sisters will be here uh, in Des Moines tomorrow for Great. the Wells Fargo shareholders meeting. Great. I want to uh, talk with them. Uh, we'll try and make that happen. <laughs> um, you know, and we're actually looking forward to tomorrow's shareholders meeting as well because we're going to be joined, uh, again, the, that third piece of the trifecta that you mentioned. We're going to be joined by a number of Native American communities, the Native Organizers Alliance, Indigenous, Indigenous Environmental Network, and our own Indigenous Iowa will be uh, heavily rep- represented here in Seeding Des Moines. sovereignty as well, I believe. And, yes, yes. And I think some of the young people who uh, from North Dakota who ran – uh, to Washington D.C. last uh, two years ago. Yes. Yeah. So and so we're excited, you know, to uh, to be able to stand in solidarity with them and and lift up their voices um, here in Des Moines as, as one of the uh, grievances that Wells Fargo needs to address. Yeah. And um, I, yeah, I don't. I, where do you see this going? Now, this is going to be tomorrow. If, if folks are listening live again, sometimes uh, folks tune into this program after the fact. But if you're listening live or catching the podcast tonight. Uh, yeah, it's it's um. I mean, people are welcome to come and join this um this uh, action. Yeah, absolutely. We're asking folks uh, from across Iowa to join. You know, folks who are coming from out of state as well. Um, at eight a.m. at the downtown Des Moines Public Library, um, we'll have a, a, a quick coffee and breakfast, and then um, we'll move into kind of a community meeting, and then move to action. Okay, and that involves a march to to uh, the the Wells Fargo downtown, which I, I love. Th- I- Maybe, maybe this was just a coincidence. Maybe it's divine intervention. But the address for for Wells Fargo downtown is six 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 Walnut Street. That's right. Um, I, you can't make those things up. No, and they've been at that location uh, <laughs> probably as long as they've been um, taking advantage of folks here in, in Iowa. Yeah. yeah, they've been there for a long time, but not longer than the Antichrist was first identified with the number six six six. That's so. that's correct. Anyway, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, what, what do you think we can accomplish with this action tomorrow? Well, I think we have to continue to, uh, like I said, you know, really lift up just the, the real stories of everyday folks who are impacted by this from Native American communities that, that uh, you know, that are fighting and continue to fight pipelines um, uh, on, stolen, on land that's been stolen from them. Uh, lift up the connections between Wells Fargo and, and gun violence and the NRA mm-hmm. and lift up uh, those who are being taken advantage of, you know, whether it's, it's predatory mortgages, predatory insurance uh, programs now that, that Wells Fargo is most recently finding. Yeah. For. Well, you know, and the coalition of people who have who have been affected by pipelines is is very broad, and it includes a lot of landowners and farmers. 
I mean, there are over, what, almost close to 1,000 landowners in Iowa alone who had in their Iowa land alone. taken for the pipeline. And I'll, I'll bet a bunch of them and a bunch of those them who are opposed to this pipeline have some, you know, financial relationship with Wells Fargo. Uh, I know they also have a court case coming up in September. That's right. That, uh, that but the uh, Iowa Sierra Club and landowners that uh, rules that they they they, they are, they're asking the court to rule that eminent domain was illegally used to take their land, and it's a strong case. So this is a chance to you know to raise that up as well and encourage those who are involved with that suit or who are supportive of it to think about what their own commitment should be in terms of where their investments are. You know there are there are better options than Wells Fargo. That, I mean, that's and, right. And, and are there are local banks that um, that have uh, a you know a, a good track record in their local community. There are, there are a few that don't, but uh, for the most part, you know, you can you can t- you tend to be able to trust a local bank. That's right. Uh, and then, of course, we've got credit unions. Right. And credit unions are under under attack right now in their own. Uh, they, they're fighting their own. They're fighting for their lives right now at the Iowa State House. That right. may be the case around the country too. But so we have people coming from all over the country, or yeah. at least uh, at least at least regionally, to be a part of this uh, national shareholders. Meeting. Yeah, we you know we've already counted folks from uh, from Minnesota, from the Dakotas, from Michigan, from Illinois. Um, so a large contingent of folks. There'll actually be some bank workers uh, mm-hmm. who are working to unionize in in, in the Twin Cities that'll be down here um, to raise up abuses they're facing as bank workers. So I, I know some suspect that one reason that uh, Wells Fargo wanted this annual shareholders meeting in, in Des Moines was to avoid uh, their home base of San Francisco, where they annually attract protests, and given all the stuff that's happened now, they're likely. They, I think they projected they would see an even bigger protest this year. So they'll move it to a nice, quiet place like the one where everybody's polite and nice and won't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just goes to show that uh, that these practices that they're engaging in have far-reaching consequences, and I think that's why we're going to see a great turnout. Yeah, and again, you know, again, yeah, we're Iowa. We're nice. Uh, but we also don't mess around, and you know we don't like being taken advantage of. That's right. And, and, and there's, this country is this company has done it on so many levels that they've got to be held accountable. That's exactly right. And they have been. I mean, they have been held accountable to some extent by uh, by by uh, oh, the the federal regulation that changed specific to them. I can't remember the details now, but it uh, uh, that's had some impact. Mm-hmm. But it's, it, it needs to go beyond that. Absolutely. It needs to go to the folks who have investments, like the sisters in Philadelphia, you know, like the teachers' union. And I'm sure there are a lot of other good entities that have investments in Wells Fargo. Get them to step forward. Individuals need, need to step forward. And again, if for some reason Wells Fargo should start doing everything right, including divesting from private prisons and the NRA and, uh, and, and, uh, and pipelines and other fossil fuel projects, then yeah, let's... Um, I, you know, if they do all those things, maybe I'll open up an account there myself. How about you? <laughs> we'll see. I, I'm, I'm happy with my local bank. You know, and I'm happy with my credit union. But um, I do think that corporate behavior, good corporate behavior, corporate behavior when it happens, should be recognized, um, mm-hmm. rewarded. I thank Delta for their, their stand uh, regarding the NRA and the uh, special flying arrangement they had with NRA members. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think uh, those things are important. Yeah. Any, yeah. any last words, Adam? Um, well, no. I mean, if you have any questions, you can uh, find more information online. Again, if you hear this uh, today or tonight uh, at iowaccci.org. Uh, otherwise, tune in probably next week for an update from Ed. <laughs> right. Yes. There you go. Now you put the pressure back on me. That was, that was crafty. Yeah, iowaccci.org. Okay, great job. And uh, it should be interesting to see how this plays out. A lot of coverage about 
about the um, about Wells Fargo and about the shareholders meeting in today's paper, including a really excellent editorial that I strongly recommend from Carolyn Raffensberger yes. that lays out very specific concerns about why why the uh, financing of pipelines is problematic. So check that out in today's Des Moines Register. Again, Carolyn Raffensberger. Later in the program, uh, Joseph Glazeberg joined us to talk about Judge Gorsuch voting on immigration in a way that probably didn't make Donald Trump, the guy who appointed him, real happy. We'll also be talking with Akeo Abdul-Samad about the, the incident in Philadelphia at a Starbucks where two black men were thrown out. Um, a lot of fascinating uh, revelations that should be coming to our heads because of that. Uh, we'll also be talking about the um, student walkout uh, this weekend and related to that and the incident of gun violence, the uh, tragic massacre at Waffle House. It just keeps going. And we'll also talk about the uh, ranked choice voting issue and why that's really important and unfortunately not well understood. Let's uh, continue our conversation um, this is a very, very, very positive development. Um, in northeast Iowa, the town of Decorah is pushing to have a public utility established. Now, these don't happen too often. In fact, the last time a public utility was, was established in Iowa was 1974. That was 44 years ago. 44 years ago, the town, town of Aurelia in, uh, in western Iowa. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it used to happen more often. And for the most part, communities that have set up, um, you know, municipal utility systems where they own it, they control it, it's gone well. And so, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I look at Manila and Denison, Eldridge, Remsen. Uh, all these towns have, um, have lower rates than, than many mid-American towns. And a lot, I mean, Alliant is, is way back. Uh, they're like 87th. And so, um, you know... Of course, yeah, as, as is expected, the, um, the big utility company is pushing back against the people who want this, and they're arguing that the power will cost more if, they, if, they have to, if it's controlled locally. They're arguing um, that there's a, you know, that uh, it won't be delivered reliably. And yet, um, you know, and the folks organizing the campaign have done a really, really good job of putting together a very clear um, and, and, and uh, solidly researched uh, position that shows that they've got, um, you know, basically it comes down to this. Are you going to believe the, um, the big power company or are you going to believe the, the people who are, uh, who are trying to gain more control over what's going on? And so, um, you know, I, I, know where I, <laughs> I know where my allegiance lies. I, 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 a basic tenet of my philosophy is that uh, big is usually – not so good for democracy. Small, uh, locally owned, um, you know, and go, yeah, you can absolutely get some kind of a, you know, a bad operator who owns a small local business. But, um, you know, when it comes to the, the, the usual run of the road, if you look at, again, a small bank versus a giant like Morgan Chase, uh, Chase Morgan, rather, or Bank of America, U.S. Bank, Wells Fargo versus your local bank, a credit union, I know which one is probably going to be more in line with my values, which is going to respect my, 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 uh, my, you know, the, the law and and uh, and what's important to me and my community. And so again, with this, uh, you know, Alliant, if you if you rank the uh, the uh, power systems in Iowa, and we've got utility, we've got two investor-owned utilities, Alliant and Mid American. You've got your your municipal utilities. You've got your rural electrical cooperatives. 
I believe there are 92 altogether. Alliant ranks 87th in terms of delivering a product that, uh, in terms of the cost of the product they deliver. You know, it's not a hard bar to get above. But again, the challenge is that the, uh, the folks pushing for this, they don't have a lot of money on their side. They um, are up against some very, you know, astute advertising against them. Again, the last time that a group tried to establish a, a local utility power in Iowa was um, back in, I think, 2008, Iowa City. Uh, you would think Iowa City, where people are progressive and, uh, and very thoughtful, you, you would think they would have been able to push back hard enough against Mid-American to get people to support that. That failed two to one. It lost on a two-to-one vote. And so I think the folks in Decor know what they're up against. Uh, again, the last time this happened in Iowa was 1974. And you know the evidence is really strong that their case makes sense. Uh, again, when it comes down to the numbers, you, know, you can believe um, the research done by Alliant or you can believe the research done by the folks who have nothing to gain they just, they just they want you know and part of it is this it isn't just that they want to control where their energy comes from they want they want to do more solar they want to do a lot more solar and you know alliance says well we're doing more solar and we're going to do even more <clears throat> well why wouldn't they have done it by now it's you know it's there 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 are places where so much is being done in solar so much more than alliance and is doing um, and so uh you know, the other thing, though, is that, that a lot of the money, if it's controlled by the people, a lot of that money goes back to the community. The, um, I want to say the uh, CEO of Alliant earns about, I want to say it's 60, it's, it's huge. Um, I'm, I'm trying to find the exact number. But the CEO of Alliant gets paid a ton of money. We'll just go with a ton of money because I, uh, I can't find the number here. But the, um, you know, the... If you weren't paying a CEO that kind of money, and you won't be if you have your own local power system, then you can give more back to the community. And Alliance says, well, we give money back to the community, but when you compare what uh, they give back versus what the local uh, initiative would give back, it's huge. It's a huge difference, and that matters a lot. And, I, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. Right now, what the, uh, what the local people who are pushing this have, have going for them is uh, a really strong argument. And also um, a good grassroots network and a strategy of trying to get people to discuss this in their homes. Um, invite 10 friends over. Invite one of the volunteers from the, um, from the Decorah Power, the, the, uh, the, the citizen-led effort over. Have them come and talk about it. Compare notes and, and see, you know, see how uh, Alliance proposal uh, and their research stacks up against what Decorah Power's research says. So, and then, you know, a lot of it, to me, to me, this is pretty simple. You got a big company that pays, you know, its CEO. I, w- I want to say it's over six billion. I, I'd, I'd have to check into that, but it's, it's in the it's in it's in an article I read recently. I can't pull the number up, but it's a lot of money. And you know that nobody in Decor Power is going to get paid ridiculous amounts of money. They probably need some staff, but they're going to be putting a lot more money back into the community, and they're going to be doing a lot more with solar energy uh, because there's no, you know, there's no commitment to. Um, to, to coal. I mean, it's going to be a transition. They can't obviously do this overnight. There's going to be a bit of a transition. So there's that. But, okay, so um, again, if you're in Northeast Iowa, pay attention to that. That's coming up on May 1st. And again, I know if you know of efforts around the country or in Iowa to 
push for municipal utility systems, uh, local power systems, let me know. I'm interested in tracking those and comparing notes because, again, folks who are doing this can learn a lot from others who've, um, who've, tra- who've traveled that road. All right, we'll be back in a couple minutes on the Fallon Forum. I remember you. You're the one who made my dreams come true. Just a few kisses ago. I remember you. You're the one who said I love you too. And I do, didn't you know? Providing bumper music for this program is Max Wellman. We've got a lot of great talent here in Des Moines, and more and more communities have great talent. One thing we're going to be talking about next week is how uh, one, um, one Iowan's vision for creating meccas of, for artists and musicians in small rural communities. We'll talk about that next week with Zach Mannheimer. Also, hey, real quick, coming up um, May 4th through 6th in Des Moines, for those here or planning to visit uh, the, um, the production Embrace this is about a movement in northern India that uh, that I, I learned about years ago and actually visited uh, some of the folks involved where they were uh, trying to um, – basically using their bodies to surround trees to prevent them from being cut down. Uh, long story. We'll hopefully talk more about that next week with Penny Ferguson. Okay, so um, before we launch uh, – I just want to give you a little bit of an update on what's coming up. We're going to be talking with Akeo Abdul-Samad later in the program about the incident at the Philadelphia Starbucks with two black men being booted out of that facility. We'll also talk about the student walkout over the weekend on gun violence and the gun violence incident, the massacre at Waffle House. And we'll talk about trying to get a better grasp of ranked choice voting, or as some call it, instant runoff voting. Uh, but now I want to welcome Joseph Glazebrook to the studio. Joseph, welcome. Thank you, Ed. Well, I got a shock when I read the uh, uh, the um, headline the other day. Uh, Gorsuch joins liberals on deportation law. This is the guy that Trump appointed to the Supreme Court. And in one of the first, I believe one of the first big decisions, he votes against the way Trump would want him, want him, to, him to vote. How do you explain that? Well, uh, I think you have to take a step back, really, because I don't think this is as big of a deal as people are making it. It, it sounds uh, appealing on, on paper, but here's the reality. I think something like uh, 60 or 70 percent of all Supreme Court cases enjoy uh, majorities that are eight or nine justices. Sure. It's, it's, the, it's more uncommon for the justices to split <clears throat> sharply on a case. So first and foremost, you know, keep that in mind. Second of all, we see odd breakdowns of the justices from time to time on various issues. Um, In the previous court, when Justice Scalia was still on the bench, for example, he often had this um, uh, very robust uh, opinion about whether people should be allowed to represent themselves in court. So he would always vote with the liberals on that specific issue. And, uh, you know, you can point to other examples where somebody has just an issue or a particular point of view that's not necessarily partisan that they take a particular view on. In this case, we have this immigration case. And basically, to give a 30-second explanation, this case had to do with something called the residual clause 
uh, of uh, a statute that Congress passed that allows people to be deported, even if they're lawful permanent residents, if they commit a certain type of crime. And there were two aspects of this statute. One was the elements portion, and one was the residual portion. Let me explain. The elements portion basically says if the crime contains certain elements, then we define it as a crime of violence and subject that person to deportation. But then there was this residual clause that basically said, and if there's an inherent risk of harm to a victim in this situation, then that crime, even though it doesn't meet the elements test, can also be considered a crime of violence. And so the liberals, along with Justice Gorsuch, voted to strike down the residual clause. And that's what people are talking about here. Okay. And that, that's, uh, I mean, it, that's not hugely in, significant in terms of immigration law. It's a small piece of it. Correct. But it's a moral victory for those who have been clamoring for reform of our immigration laws and for a more reasonable approach than merely building a big wall and deporting 12 million people. And it, it's, um, and I think it's also significant because we know where Trump stands on this. Yeah. And this guy that Trump appointed voted the other way. Right. I, mean, I, I think that's significant. Am I it, wrong? It, it certainly uh, paints a powerful narrative that you can say that, that the justice who Trump appointed voted against him on an immigration case. The problem is I honestly don't believe that Justice Gorsuch's vote on this case had anything to do whatsoever with immigration. I believe it had everything to do with his view about whether Congress – can use broad strokes and broad language to um, uh, criminalize certain behavior. And because that behavior was then lumped into an immigration statute, um, he, he struck it down. I don't think it had to do with his desire to see more immigrants in this country. I think it had to do with his desire to limit Congress's ability well, to uh, take people's liberty. Yeah, and his quote um, regarding vague laws, it can, uh, vague laws can invite the exercise of arbitrary power by leaving the people in the dark about what the law demands and allowing prosecutors and courts to make it up. The law before us today is such a law. Exactly. So, exactly. Now, I will say this. I mean, I, I was fascinated by his vote, too. I think legal observers all around the country were. So I went back and I listened to the oral arguments from this, this Sessions versus DiMaia case. And it was very clear in the argument that Justice Gorsuch uh, was very skeptical of the government's position in this case. And again, I don't necessarily think it was because he wanted to see more immigrants who had committed nonviolent crimes, such as in this case, uh, nonviolent burglary, you know, going into somebody's house and taking something. Politely um, stealing something. Yeah, politely stealing something yeah. rather than holding them up with, at gunpoint, right, which right. would get them deported. I don't think he wanted to see polite burglars stay in this country any more than any other buddy <laughs> on the right would. Uh, but what I think he was doing was he was saying, look, Congress, if you're going to make this a deportable offense, you have to be really specific about what it means. And it is vague. And yeah. it is vague. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I, mean, well, I have not been following the uh, Trump tweet storm uh, lately, but I, I imagine he's – has he had anything to say in response to the vote by Gorsuch? No. He has stayed completely away from this one. That's I, odd. It, it is because he had <laughs> – I think he had a very record-breaking a tweet weekend. I think it had a lot more to do with him being snubbed from the Barbara Bush funeral and wait, having wait, Obama wait. talk. He talk was with snubbed him. from the funeral. Well, I, mean, I thought he chose to go to Mar-a-Lago and send. He was snubbed. Well, in. He he was. It was it was made clear how, to him by the Bush family. I think that he would not be appreciated there. So really? they sent Melania instead. So it's just uh, Melania. How, how do we know that? It's just. You know, I have to trust intuition, you intuition, intuition. I think if you, I think there are people who are better sourced who who would also say the same thing. But I mean, that's what I assume I mean, happened. I mean, I can believe that, but I could also believe that he just doesn't want to deal with a funeral and would rather play golf. 
Perhaps. But I, I think that the Bushes were nonetheless happy he wasn't there. And I think because of that and because there's a very prominent picture of President Obama speaking to Melania Trump, that he was very unhappy this weekend. And he's unhappy a lot of weekends. Because he thinks, he thinks, uh, thinks former President Obama is trying to pick up Melania? No, it's because he hates President Obama. He <laughs> oh, right, right, to right, do with right, him right, And he doesn't right, want right. his family talking to him. That's right. But anyway, I, so how he dare, say, How dare his wife talk to a former president that's right. at a former president's wife's funeral? My gosh, what is he thinking? Yeah, but anyway, so he, but he didn't seem to mention Justice Gorsuch. And by the way, for those who are wondering, you know, this is not going to be another situation where a Republican nominates a Republican to the bench, and then that person shifts into a liberal, like we've seen so many times before, with people like Justice uh, Souter or people who was appointed by George H. W. Bush but became a relatively liberal guy, or Justice John Paul Stevens, who was appointed by President Ford, who became probably the most liberal member of the court. How, how do you explain that? How do you explain two judges? appointed by Republican presidents becoming more liberal in terms of their rulings. And you can add Earl Warren, who was appointed by Eisenhower, and Bill Brennan, who was appointed by Eisenhower, (laughs) and even Harry Blackman, who was appointed by Richard Nixon. So all 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 these justices drifted to the left. And I think the reason for that, first of all, I don't think that's happening here. I'll get to that. But the reason that happened historically, I think, is because it's easy to take an ideological position until you're actually on the bench. And then when you're actually deciding cases on the facts before you, you have to take more nuanced views. And as you do that more and more, I think there's a tendency to become more liberal because I think political liberalism in, in the not, I mean, it's, you know, left of center politics is a more nuanced approach to everything, whereas right-wing politics is a very black-and-white thing. And I think when you get more nuanced, you have to become a little bit more liberal. Well, and, 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 and human activity yeah. and, and the law that guides it uh, is, is by nature nuanced. Exactly. But I don't think that's what's happening here with Justice Gorsuch. No. Because if you look at his track record on every other issue, on every other case, he has voted super conservatively. He has voted to deny death penalty claimants' appeals. He has voted to enhance the ability of religious people to exempt themselves from general laws of neutral application. He has voted against civil rights. He has voted to make it harder for plaintiffs to go into court and sue the government over civil rights violations. He has voted uh, against abortion clinics. He has voted against voting rights. I could go on. He is a conservative's conservative. This one case is the only time that we can really see a clear break from that pattern. I don't even think it's ideological. I think it's the technical nature of this case. Well, thanks for ruining my day, Joseph. <laughs> well, no problem, man. I'm always, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> You're always there for me. Okay. Absolutely. So just, uh, just uh, thinking, uh, if we can take a little, slightly uh, broader look in the little time we have left here. Um, again, Trump, we, you were on the show last time to talk about uh, the Russian investigation and Stormy Daniels. Uh, is either Russia or Stormy continuing to build enough mo- momentum where we might see uh, some movement toward impeachment or some response to Trump that could be unfavorable toward him? Well, I think it depends. Uh, I think it depends on what the Mueller report uh, shows. I think if it shows black and white smoking gun evidence of uh, collaboration with Russian nationals to elect President Trump, then, yeah, I think their impeachment would be back on the table. If it's anything less clear than that, though, I don't think this particular Congress would uh, move towards that. It looks clear that they're uh, circling the wagons and defending him. What if he fires Mueller? What does that say? If he fired Robert Mueller, I believe it would set set into motion a political backlash that would result in the reinstatement of either Robert Mueller or a separate uh, special counsel. It's important to note that, the, at least according to the regulations that um, Mueller was appointed under, that if he was fired, it would not end the process. It would merely replace his leading it. So he could try to shut it down in other ways, but firing Mueller itself would not do that. 
Um, but, who, I, but who would appoint Mueller's successor? Rod Rosenstein, unless he's gone. And, yeah, well, okay, <laughs> yeah, then there you have it. I mean, eventually, ultimately, Trump is going to decide who gets to replace Mueller. I mean, in, in a way, down the line. I mean, there's uh, different arguments. Some people think that um, Trump can fire Mueller directly and appoint somebody he wants or not appoint anybody at all uh, based upon a weird, very uh, pro-presidency reading of Article 2, the Executive Power Clause. But most legal scholars believe that the Appointments Clause of Article 2 allows the Congress to actually – uh, vest the ability to appoint what we call inferior officers, including the special counsel, in the attorney general himself, and therefore he'd have to go through the attorney general. Right. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, I mean, it's uh, I've, I've long predicted that Trump will not be around by the 2018 election because Republicans don't want him there. I think um, it's uh, uh, baggage, and I think that's the calculation perhaps they've made. They've said, look, we're going to lose this election anyway, or at least we're vulnerable. So why why uh, why ruin the presidency for us for the next uh, three years over see, I, this I, one I, midterm? I think Republicans will lose less in 2018 if they dump Trump. And also, then they get Pence in place. Yeah. From our point of view, as you know, as progressives, right. I don't think we're going to be. I think we're going to be even less happy with President. He's, Pence. he's a competent right wing, yeah. a crazy person, whereas Trump is an incompetent right wing, crazy person. But that being said, I agree with that analysis. Except I'm not sure that it's going to peak in 2018 midterm elections. I think that calculation is more clear in the 2020 election. If they want to have a chance in that election and get rid of the stench of corruption and uh, cronyism that Trump associates with their party. If they act now, I'm not sure they'll be clean by 2018, but I think they would be by 2020. One last thing, uh, Joseph. I've got to share with you the, uh, the, uh, the cartoon from uh, Doonesbury. I don't know whether you saw this or not, but um, it, it just um, the pastor says, uh, one final announcement uh, from the Board of Elders. There has been some confusion among evangelicals as to what currently constitutes sin in the eyes of the church. And then he uh, says, uh, the pastor says, to clarify, we now condone the following conduct, uh, lewdness, vulgarity, profanity, adultery, and sexual assault. <laughs> Exemptions to Christian values also include greed, bullying, conspiring, boasting, lying, cheating, uh, sloth, envy, wrath, <laughs> gluttony, and pride. Others to be announced. And then the pastor says, lastly, we're willing to overlook biblical illiteracy, church non-attendance, and... No credible sign of faith. And one guy says, going out, loving the low bar, Pastor. And the other guy says, me too. I feel like a, a, I feel like a, a saint. <laughs> um, I mean, does, doesn't the evangelical right have a real dilemma on its hand? Because, I mean, you know, the truth is President Obama was the epitome of the family values that they, that they, 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 they put on a pedestal. And Trump yeah. is the opposite. Well, and there was a poll out, and maybe the, this thing is in reference to that poll, but there was a poll that says 75% of evangelicals still support him. So yeah, there's a huge hypocrisy. It's amazing to me. Huge amazing. hypocrisy problem. <laughs> I think, though, you have to understand that evangelicalism or you know, right-wing Christian ideology has nothing to do with the actual beliefs that are practiced. It's really more of an identity in the same way that um, you know, being uh, a member of a particular 
town or maybe a, a particular culture would be. This is an identity thing. It's not about the beliefs. Uh, it's about identifying with uh, like-minded individuals who are out to stop liberals. And they, they have always uh, uh, invested in the idea that liberals are immoral, and therefore whatever they can do to stop liberals is moral, even if it's with an imperfect uh, or very flawed person. It's an identity, Ed. It's not about the actual beliefs. Yeah, I, and I, I don't like that. I think it's I'm hypocritical, sure. but it's, yeah, that's I'm, what I'm I think. I'm not sure I agree with that, but I, again, I... I'd love to talk more about that, but we have run out of time. We've got to take a break. Uh, so you get the last word. Well, I think that uh, I think that they will see. <laughs> I think if something like an indictment or perhaps a successful lawsuit by uh, Stormy Daniels were to go through, I think you'd see that number come down a little bit. All right, go Stormy. All right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us, uh, Joseph Glazebrook, folks. Welcoming to the studio, uh, Akeo Abdul Samad, a state legislator, and. Um, uh, a solid community member who's always out there um, fighting the good fight. Thank you. Good to be here. Ed. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. good you're you're good. on your way to the hill right now. I'm on my way to the hill. Yeah. The Last week? No. I, I think we'll be there about another two weeks. Another two weeks. Okay. Yes. Hopefully minimizing the damage. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. Now, speaking of damage, uh, Starbucks right now um, under a lot of fire. Yes. For um, not just booting but having arrested... Uh, Two black men yes, at a Starbucks in Philadelphia. Yes. Well, you know, one of the things that I, I like that the CEO was talking about, you know, was doing some cultural diversity training, some inclusive training. That's good. But I, I think some management training needs to be because it is a policy of Starbucks that if you go in there, you don't have to order for it, especially going for a meeting. And other individuals of other ethnicities were in there, had sat down. These two individuals were singled out because of, unfortunately, we still have a problem with racism in this country. Yeah, I've noticed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they were called. The manager called, and, you know, these individuals were arrested. What were they arrested for? Loitering? Well, loitering. Loitering. Yes. Yeah. That's a, how, that's long, a, how long had they been in there? Well, they were actually waiting for uh, another individual for the meeting. That's why they didn't order. Right. And, in fact, while they were being arrested, the other individual showed up. They arrested him, too? No, they, they let it? him go. You know, they didn't arrest him. But these two were then taken out. You know, and, but the good part is, is wow. that we have to use this as a learning experience. Right. And also to the fact that and realize the struggle is real. Mm-hmm. And we still have problems with racism, sexism, all the isms, the phobias are real out there, yeah. and we have to address them. Yeah. Now, uh, it's odd to me that you would go into a coffee shop or a restaurant or a bar and not order something, because I, I guess I'm very empathetic with the challenges faced by small business owners. Well, I'm not, not the Starbucks is a small business. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> no. But uh, yeah, it's just kind of a matter of habit on my part. You go into a place, you order something. Well, they but were. I, I understand. In this case, they were actually waiting for their third party to arrive. Right, and then they were going to order. Yeah, you know, I've that's done reasonable. That. Yeah, I've done that. Mm -hmm. I've walked into a, a coffee shop at, or a place, even a restaurant, mm -hmm. and I said, you know, I'm waiting for somebody, and yeah, and they that respect time, that. They, they respect, respect that. that. Yeah, they were respected, and whether the individual that <laughs> promoted this arrest, mm -hmm. you know, or was instrumental in it, was conditioned. You know, we have individuals mm -hmm. that are conditioned in this country 
to believe that, you know, uh, you see an African-American come in with a beard and a natural, you know, that's has then sets up a fear factor for individuals. Have you experienced that yourself in Des Moines? Oh, I have, especially if I'm in an area that, you know, people don't know me, you know, and then later they may. But, you know, I mean, I walked into the store when I was had on my hoodie and that type of thing and been followed. You really? Know? How yeah. long ago was that? Oh, this is about three weeks ago. That three weeks ago? Yeah, three weeks ago. And I was Whoa. actually rushing and I ran in. But when I realized I was being followed in the store, I just walked all over the store and I would pick up items and set them down. You were a little mischievous. Yeah, well, I was because it was just, because, you, know, you know. I mean, I used to that's a compliment when it comes from yeah. me. Yeah. And it was, it, you know, and I would set it down. And finally, I, I picked up one item and walked all the way to the door. You know, going out. Then I set the item down. I turned to him and said, I was going to buy something. And then I walked out the door. And the individual stood there and literally followed me out the door. Do you want to say what store it was? No, I don't. No, No, I don't. I, I wouldn't do that to them. All right. Well, that's uh, that's uh, that's bad. Yeah, that's that ain't right. Yeah, it is. It is. Now, I I, when I was a state lawmaker, uh, uh, Wayne Ford. Yes. Was the only uh, African-American member of our caucus. Yes. And we went to a meeting in southeast Iowa. Yes. And he was actually harassed by the hotel. You know, you know he the was. story? You know yeah, the story. I do yeah. know the story. And because, the because you know, what is a large black man doing in a, in exactly. a, in a hotel in, in Lily White, rural Iowa? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> we have a lot to learn. But I do want to say, and the reason why I won't mention the story that yes. I was in, was that I did go back. Mm-hmm you know, later and contact the management and explain to what was going on. And they actually, through their video camera, watched me, mm-hmm. you know, and watched the individual follow. And they did apologize. And we did talk about them doing some type mm-hmm. of training. Good. So, you know, that's why I don't want to mention the story. When you can correct it. But I do want to mention that I think when that happens, mm-hmm. you have to say something. Yes, you do have to say something. You have to go back sure. and say something. Just don't let it go. Yeah. go and and, and I think, I th- I think uh, you know, a, a white ally who understands the importance of fighting racism should also yeah. say something. Without a doubt. Yeah. Well, no, without a doubt. And I think it should. And not just use Facebook. Yeah, no, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. should go out to say something. Yeah. Face to face is better face than Facebook. Face. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I, and this is, um, you know, we we have a over the weekend we had a Klan rally. Oh, yes. down near Georgia. Yes. Now we're down near near Atlanta in Georgia. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so and, yeah, I mean, the, I, I think some of the racists feel very empowered to speak up because of the you know implicit support or even direct support they feel from the president. Yeah. We have a climate. We have a climate that it has that, and that we have to do something about it. And but we have to be strong. We have to join together. We don't have the luxury to fight each other. Right. We have to be strong because the struggle is real. But the key is we can win. Yeah. Well, and it, look, if you look at where we've come from the days when slavery was the law of the land, we've come yeah. a long way. We still have a ways to go. Exactly. Akeo, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank Akeo you. Akeo Abdul Samad, folks here in the studio with me. Thanks for tuning in to today's How program. Do, you do me. Just watch me smile. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here as we discuss the most um, recent gun at a Waffle House near Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, This uh, during the same weekend when in Iowa and I think other places around the country, uh, students who were on 
break during the earlier walkout, did their walkout, and this happened on Friday, and thousands, you know, it's hard to estimate the crowd, but the best estimates are thousands showed up at the stable to demand tougher gun, gun laws. Again, not just, at the, not just at the federal level, but at the state level as well. And, um, you know, this, uh, this movement continues to show that it has legs and it has organizational focus and a real, you know, a, a real message that is resonating with more and more people. And yet, even as that happens, we have news of still yet another gun massacre. This one at Waffle House in Tennessee. Uh, this is very fresh, not, I mean, it's so fresh that the the alleged murderer, 29-year-old Travis Reinking, is still at large. Uh, that's as of the last, uh, just a minute ago, as I checked. Um, now, it also looks that this kid was very, very, tra- he's, 20, he was, he's 29 years old. He looks to be extremely troubled. Uh, you would have to be troubled to think that Taylor Swift was stalking you. I thought it usually worked the other way where Taylor Swift thought people were stalking her. I mean, that's, that's, the usual, that's usually how it goes with celebrities. Um, so he thinks Taylor Swift is stalking him. He also claims that he's a sovereign citizen and has, as, a, as, as such has the right to inspect the uh, White House grounds. And he tried to get into the White House grounds and was arrested for trespassing. Uh, this, I believe, was earlier this year. That led to um, the... Uh, the local county sheriff's office um, taking away his firearms, removing his firearms and his ammunition from his apartment, along with his state fire own, firearm owner's identification. And uh, that's good. That was encouraging. A guy who is that out of touch, uh, obviously, probably shouldn't be owning those weapons. So uh, apparently... The um, kid's father, Jeffrey Reinking, gave those firearms and that ammunition back to his kid, including the AR-15 style weapon that uh, is believed to have been used in the shooting scene at the Waffle House. Okay, so this this raises lots of questions. And some are saying, well, did this father break the law by giving those weapons back to the kid I'd say he probably did, or if he didn't break the law, he broke good judgment. Again, I we know very little about this kid, and even less about the father, although I think that's going to be becoming public real quick here. But, you know, the question that I would have right now is, why would you do that, Dad? Why would you give this kid back guns? But the bigger question we have, and again, uh, it doesn't help that the uh, mayor of Nashville, David Briley, says, I asked Nashville to pray for the ra- pray for and rally around these victims. You know, that that's fine. But more, you, you can't just say that. I mean, you know, it's gotten to the point now where if people of, if, if are victims of a, a gun massacre or who have strong feelings about it, which would be most of us, if we hear the words thoughts and prayers, you know, that's likely to get a very, very antagonistic response because clearly we're beyond that. Something needs to be done. And I'm not one of these people who think that it's just about guns. I think guns are probably the most important part of the problem. We've got to address mental health. We've got to address the 
extent to which Americans have become disconnected from each other and from the natural world, those things are, I think, more important than we realize. We've got to address violence in the media and on video games. We've got to address all those things. But, you know, all, all of these, these things are all prominent in other parts of the world as well, even just to the north of us in Canada. Yet the one thing that, that's exceptional is the ease of accessing dangerous weapons. And why was this kid who was clearly delusional and mentally ill, why, why was he ever allowed to own an AR-57-15 in the first place? Now, I know, I know there are always going to be ways that someone, there's always going to be someone who slips through the cracks. But um, to me, it seems like this is one that should not have. And, uh, you know, regardless, uh, the father giving the guns back, mosh. Anyway, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know what he was thinking. And um, he may be criminally liable now. We'll see what happens. But um, I imagine this kid will be caught. Um, I don't know how... Uh, you know, in, in today's in today's world, how you can how you can hide, especially when the entire you know, in the the entire weight of law enforcement is pursuing you. And I guess what I'm really well, there's lots of unanswered questions. But why did he do this? I mean, it, it looks to me, why did he go? He's an he's an Illinois resident. And he went over to Tennessee. He went to a Waffle House. Uh, I don't know whether he had a bad experience at a Waffle House or. You know, I'm trying to figure out why he decided to do this. Who knows? I mean, again, maybe that'll come out. But the victims, all four victims were people of color. Um, they were uh, a uh, college student, an aspiring rapper. Um, again, I'm just starting to learn more about that now. Uh, and the guy who um, who was able to stop Travis Reinking from further killing anyone also an African-American, who, um, he's, he's very humble about this. He does not want to call it a hero. But gosh, when you wrestle the arm of a guy with, a, with an automatic weapon, <laughs> that takes some level of heroism. That takes some bravery, some courage. And in doing so, he probably prevented a whole bunch of other deaths. Uh, he, and again, beyond the four deaths, there are eight people, I believe eight people in the hospital, some of them with injuries that are very serious. Back to the bigger question, why, you know, why can we not do something about gun violence in this country? And uh, I think more and more people are asking that question. And I commend the student-led movement because, I, you know, I, clearly folks from my generation and the next generation haven't, uh, haven't been able to move the, uh, move the uh, barometer on this issue. And maybe the drive being pushed by young people now is going to do that. We'll see. But, but this latest, um, latest massacre, it just makes it even more paramount that we take action as soon as possible so no more of these crazy shootings happen. I'll try Ignoring those lips that I adore. But how long an issue of very um an issue not as well known as it needs to be, sometimes called instant runoff voting. More and more often lately called ranked choice voting. Take your pick. Uh, basically it's when 
you get to list your preference of candidates. So, you know, the argument is that if I can go, you know, right now it's winner take all and you get one shot, you vote for one candidate or the other. And you, you hear this all the time where people say, well, I would have voted for so-and-so, but I didn't think they'd win. Well, you should be able to vote for so-and-so. And yeah, maybe they don't win, but maybe that gives them a better shot at it. But you can go down the ballot and vote for your first choice, your second, your third, your fourth. And, you know, and again, I know there are lots of problems and, and questions and concerns about the security of our voting system. But, you know, this has been done with paper, which can be done. It's more complicated, <laughs> a lot messier maybe. But it's, it's more easily accomplished with, with uh, modern voting systems. And so there are more and more voters across the country that are now ranking their preferred candidates. And there are countries, I know, I know Ireland does this for president. And if the Irish do it, it's got to be a good idea, right? Okay, that was my bias. But the, um, <laughs> you know, just looking at the, uh, the USA Today article recently about this, you know, Democrats in Congress and election reform advocates hope that the increased adoption of voting uh, of ranked voting choice systems will begin to uh, draw attention to a bill in the in the US House <coughs> that would uh, implement uh, this practice for federal races across the country again that may be a long shot because my suspicion is I'd like to see some of the official party responses to this bill uh, I, I know that when I was a lawmaker in Iowa we had there was I remember our First Amendment with a Republican, uh, actually a Republican, um, Mike Cormack, who was just ousted as, uh, as uh, in his role with state government. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, at the time, we agreed that that instant runoff voting and some other basic election forms made sense. But they were shot down by both parties, by the leadership of both parties. And so while you've got this bill introduced by Don Deere, of uh, a Democrat from Virginia, um, and also uh, Jim Cooper of Tennessee is also one of the bill's co-sponsors, you know, I, I know that in the past there have been people in both political parties that support this, but I wonder what the official Democratic Party position is, the official Republican Party system is, because I suspect they're going to fight back against it really hard as soon as it becomes more and more, you know, common. But the fact that it's being used at the local level, again, most of the good stuff happening in our country anymore is happening at the local level. You know, Congress is absolutely dysfunctional. Many legislative chambers are, are pretty much dysfunctional. Uh, local politics is where it's at. So let's see what happens with the leadership being provided on ranked choice voting at the local level. If it doesn't have any impact at the federal level, at least we continue to see some momentum in cities and counties across the country. Again, this is uh, Ed Fallon. Thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. You can listen to the podcast after this program on the Fallon Forum website, www.fallonforum.com, and you can catch the live broadcast at 11 a.m. Central Time on Mondays. Round and round I go Like a leaf that's caught in the tide I should stay away, but what can I do? I hear your name, and I'm aflame. Aflame with such a burning desire that only a kiss can put out the fire. 
For you're the lover I have waited for. You're the mate that fate had me.